Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Parson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today I'll be talking to John Sides, an associate professor of political science at George Washington University. Professor Sides has written or co-written a number of books, including Campaigns and Elections and The Gamble, Choice and Chance in the 2012 Presidential Election. He's also the founder of The Monkey Cage, a political science blog he started in 2007. It was so popular and so good that six years later, The Monkey Cage moved over to The Washington Post, where it's been ever since. Professor Sides, welcome to The Politics Guys. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, now, I'm guessing that people probably know you best from The Monkey Cage, and which is sort of an unusual name for a politics blog. And I was wondering if you could explain the name of it. When we were creating The Monkey Cage in 2007, uh, we probably couldn't think of a great name that had politics or something like that or political science in the title that sounded very interesting. So we started casting about for other kinds of possibilities. And I ran across this quote um, from the writer H.L. Mencken, which is that democracy, said, democracy is the art of running the circus from the monkey cage. Other versions of that passage actually say democracy is the art and science of running the circus from the monkey cage. And in either case, we thought that that was a you know, kind of a fun way to signal the content of the blog, but do so in a way that, you know, I don't know, it was a little bit more creative than some cognate of political science or politics. Right, right. So, and do you, do you think there's, do you think that was just a, a very catchy title, which it is, or do you think there was something to what, what Mencken said about that? I think we originally thought it was a catchy title. Um, you know, I certainly think that all of us on our best or maybe our worst days have a little bit of the cynicism that H.L. Mencken did, or it seemed to with that quote. Sure. Um, but I don't think it reflects any grand philosophical statement on our part. Ah, okay. Um, and so what, what, was your, what was your idea behind the blog? What was your, you know, your approach? And what do you think that the monkey cage offers readers that they can't maybe get from standard, typical political reporting? Well, when we founded it, I think we looked around and, and, and saw kind of a paucity of, of political science voices in the blogosphere, as, as it was called. There were certainly a few, um, but we we seem to be as a discipline underrepresented relative to, for example, economics. And at the same time, there was a lot of casual political reporting and punditry that we thought was oftentimes, you know, basically wrong. I mean, not really right. in touch with the findings of you know, 50, 60, however many years of political science research. Um, and so we thought there was real value in, in trying to find a way to talk about politics, but draw on the research in doing so. Um, so we think of ourselves as providing kind of uh, research-based analysis. And we I think, you know, what sets us apart from standard political reporting it's, a, it's you know it's the political reporter's job I think oftentimes to to you to be speaking directly to political actors and represent their viewpoints. So on a campaign, the job of a reporter is to write and, and talk about what the candidate's doing. Um, you know I, I think what we add to that conversation is a perspective that's grounded in evidence. Uh, of a more scientific bent that's grounded in sort of more systematic kinds of inquiry. So, you know, obviously we're not here just to talk about one presidential campaign, but to talk about, you know, a body of literature that's been written across multiple presidential campaigns. Right. Um, so and I, I don't think the two things necessarily are, are always in tension with each other. Um, 
but I do think that that what you can see on the monkey cage oftentimes is a is a is a perspective that you know you can only get by drawing on the expertise of someone that's that's spent a long time reading and studying about a about a subject. Right, and and I would say at least in my my impression is that it's done in a way that's much more approachable than say if somebody read through a bunch of journal abstracts or something like that. And and I was wondering, did you find it difficult to make that you and your co-authors find it difficult to make that transition from academic writing to writing from a for a sort of a broader general audience? In the in, I think in the initial um, days of of when the blog was first started um i think it took all of us a little bit of a, a little bit of time to kind of find our voice um you know the the two main contributors earlier on early on were lee siegelman and me um and i think you know both lee and i had an interest in writing clearly and trying to avoid jargon and i think with a little bit of practice we got better at that as the blogs have, you know, has changed over time, it's become much more of a of a of a sort of clearinghouse for lots of scholars. Um, we've had more than fifteen hundred people write for us um, since we moved to the Washington Post alone, and there, I think that one thing that we've done is to try to bring a little bit more editorial guidance. So we have now. Um, a couple of people with longtime training as journalists and editors who are helping us run the site and providing contributors with substantive feedback about their pieces. And, and they're not political scientists by training. And so things that, you know, would escape my attention don't escape theirs. So, for example, the, you know, just to say in a post um, something about proportional representation, blah, 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 contrast it with a first-past-the-post system. Right. You know, you and I would say, oh, yeah, sure. And I, some lay readers would know what that is, and some might not. So they're just good at, at finding the, the spots at which maybe we assume too much knowledge and also finding ways to transform somewhat drab academic prose into something a little bit more lively. Hmm. Okay. Now, you mentioned the Washington Post, and it's, it's – not at all common for for a blog to move to you know a major media outlet, the Washington Post. So obviously the Monkey Cage has been you know, very successful by almost any standard. And so I'm wondering why you think it has been such a success. Well, I think one of the things that's made it successful is that it stepped into a bit of a vacuum. Um, where I don't think there was a lot of ongoing discussion about political science research. Right. Um, I think it happened to emerge at a time when there was um, a new generation of political writers who were interested in data, interested in political science. The usual suspects, you know, in that list are people like Nate Silver and Ezra Klein. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they wanted to know what we knew, which is, and, you know, I think, and they, more than that, they wanted, they didn't just want to make it like, they didn't just want the, the, the quote from the political scientist that they can put in the eight right. paragraph of their 10 paragraph story. Yeah. You know, they wanted to make the political science research or, or, or scientific kinds of understanding at the core of their approach to writing about politics. And so I think that was very helpful for us. You know, in terms of just keeping the monkey cage going, I think the thing that's been most helpful over time is the fact that it's always been a group project um, from its inception. And so, you know, initially we had you know, three of us, then we had five of us, and then we had, I don't can't quite, now we have about sort of seven or eight of us that are at the core of the, of the editorial team. But as we evolved and, and started drawing on a lot of outside contributors, you know, the aforementioned 1,500 or more, Essentially, we, we, we survive in part because we can draw upon such a broad uh, array of, of knowledge and expertise. Right. Um, I don't think we could – I mean, I think that, that has two, two purposes. One is that it just saves us from having to come up with something to say every sure. day. Sure, yeah. And the other is that I just, I just think it means our content is that much more 
diverse and relevant. I mean, I, if, if there's a terrorist attack in France, you know, I can't myself talk a lot about the nature of Muslim integration in France or how this is connected to the ISIS's battle in Syria or whatever, you know, but there are commentators out there that can do those things. And right. so that helps us, I think, just be that much more topical. So I, I would imagine then as the as the monkey cage has grown and, and especially after you move to the post, that there'd probably be more political scientists who would have heard of it and be interested in writing for it. So it, it sort of builds on itself in that way. Yeah, I think we are in a general week, you know, fielding you know, I don't know, collectively, I don't know, dozens of requests, you know, dozens of, of emails that, that where people are coming to us and mm -hmm. saying, I want to write about this or here's a post about this. Right. Um, you know, we do obviously work strategically to target people who have specific expertise when events really demand that expertise. Sure. Um, but I, I think, you know, in large part, one thing, one thing that's been encouraging about doing the monkey cage is just, I think, seeing political scientists get more interested in doing this kind of public writing now that there is an outlet for it. Right. So can you talk a little bit about how the move to the Washington Post came about? Sure. We had had over... Um, over time, we talked to a few different publications about the possibility of kind of moving in-house. Um, and in the, in, in the course of thinking through one of those offers, I had reached out to Ezra Klein and just said, you know, I could use your advice about this. And he said, well, you know, before you make any decisions about that, you really should come and talk to the Post. And so he brokered a conversation huh. with the the editorial um, management of the post as well as someone on the business side that was at the point at which the the washington post was still owned by the the post company um and my my sense of the post's thinking at that point in time was that um they were simultaneously i, I think trimming no, the number of of independent or, or sort of separate blogs on the site some of which really weren't that active but and they were also looking to build expertise in different subject areas by importing some well-established academic blogs. And so they brought us on board and they brought a, a law blog called the, the Volokh Conspiracy. Um, they, I know they talked to a couple of kind of prominent healthcare economists and writers who had it their own site. Um, and, you know, our mandate from them was, was just to do what we do. They weren't asking us to change anything. Um, they gave us a, a lot of editorial independence. You know, no one was looking over our shoulders saying, you know, why, why don't you stop writing so much about the, about political science right. and start giving us like, you know, juicy horse race coverage of, of, of the campaign or, or what have you. Um, and so, you know, that's how it came about. I think for us, the move to the post was, was, um, based on the fact that we thought that it was a good match for us in terms of, you know, their location and editorial mm -hmm. approach. It's also, I think, uh, a really unparalleled platform. Uh, obviously, our, our, the number of people who read our content is vastly larger than it used sure. to be with uh, your independent.org site. Yeah. Um, so given the, the opportunity for a larger audience and, and, not, and not being asked to change what we do, I just think was was difficult for us to turn down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So political scientists, as, as you know, I'm sure, have a reputation for being left of center. And in, in my experience, at least, that's reasonable. Uh, would you agree with that? And do you think that that's had any impact on a blog like The Monkey Cage that's written by political scientists? Uh, my my sense of, of most of the you know, sort of scientific surveys of, of academics is that um, the social sciences do lean somewhat left, um, and political science is in that category, maybe not as far left as some other social science disciplines like sociology, yeah. maybe a little bit more left than something like economics. So I think that's true. It's a general rule. Um, 
does it affect what's on the site? It's a good question. You know, we certainly ask authors um, not to be advocates in their writing. Obviously not advocates for political parties or right. candidates. Um, but also we don't, we typically don't, we ask them not to be, you know, advocates for particular policy solutions. Mm-hmm. And I think this just reflects our sense that um, our mission is really to provide analysis. So if you think a particular policy is the right policy, fine. But I, I don't, I think what we're asking you to do is to tell us analytically, you know, is, right. is, is that policy likely to be passed or not? I mean, or, or are current politics conducive? Sure. Such a policy, so more of a process kind of focus. Then, yeah, I think that that's more that's more in line with with what we're doing. That said, um, and I think the two caveats to that one is just that you know I'm describing our approach, but I don't think that's the only approach that's that's useful or relevant for scholars who want to be public intellectuals. Mm-hmm. There are certainly scholars who do take positions on issues and. And or advocate for particular candidates, and I don't think that that's um, inappropriate or wrong. Right. Um, it's just that that's just not our modus operandi. And the other, and the second thing is to say that we're asking you not to, to be an advocate doesn't mean that you have doesn't mean that your conclusions um, can't have um, can't have a valence, meaning like. Mm-hmm. You, we're not asking you to change your conclusions so that Democrats and Republicans will like them equally. Right. 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 Um, so we have we definitely have stories, findings, analysis that's that's makes one side of the aisle happier than the other side of the aisle. Yeah. Or yeah. even to take some of the more comparative politics content. You know, we have discussions about the behavior of regimes that the regimes themselves don't like. And we've occasionally heard about that. Oh. Um, and But we're not going to s- pretend that um, a regime that is characterized by all independent observers, by most major cross-national data sets as authoritarian, you know, is democratic. Right. Sure. So th- I think there are, there are ways to make statements that are grounded in evidence that might be controversial to certain political factions um, you can still do that, but but I think again the overall standpoint is is to to be analytical. Yeah. Now you mentioned Ezra Klein a few times, and uh, as, as you know, and as I'm sure most of the listeners have known, that in the last few years there have been a number of websites that have uh, come up that while they're not actually run by political scientists, they have a very data driven data driven approach at Vox and Nate Silver with 538 and the New York Times with the upshot and wondering do you do you think this is sort of the wave of the future or, or are these sites uh, to maybe just sort of a, a niche phenomenon um, I, I don't it's probably somewhere in between those two um, I think that what people who do so-called data journalism, um, think is that you know it's it's a really important tool in a in a broader toolkit mm-hmm. um, that journalists use. You know we talk about methodological toolkits and in, in, in science as well, and I think that what's exciting about data from the perspective of journalists it's it's a different way to tell a story, right? Um, than traditional shoe leather reporting. It doesn't replace it, but it can add something to it. Um, so I would expect to see that kind of approach be much more present mm-hmm. in coverage of politics and other kinds of issues. Um, I don't think... I don't. I think the idea would be for it to be relatively integrated, mm-hmm. not sil- not siloed on its own site, right? Right. right. Um, and I think that's the direction that you'll see um, news organizations move. I, re- I remember from I think it was 2013 or so the 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 most trafficked piece of content on the New York Times website for the entire year 
was this thing called the dialect quiz. Right. Yeah. So they, this guy who was a computer scientist, a PhD student at North Carolina State University, had built this thing where, you know, based on all these data about what words people use to describe particular things, you know, you can answer 25 questions and it could tell you where you're likely to be from. And I've taken that quiz mm -hmm. and it is dead accurate. <laughs> like, yeah. I, it, it pinpointed Winston-Salem on the basis that I call, like, you know, that thing in your front yard where you sell your stuff, a yard sale. Right. You know, that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, the fact that you could take data and build an interactive, visually interesting um, experience for users and have it be so popular, I think, has made, um, you know, journalists interested in, in continuing to do that. It's, it's, um, it's almost like we, we, I mean, we've seen this in sports, certainly, and now it seems like it's coming over much more into the political and policy realms, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, now, I do think that there is there is a difference between just can we learn something from data? That's one approach. And something that says, can we build an understanding of data and science, you know, into our our philosophy of covering politics? Right. And that's maybe where something like, I think, you know, Vox is a little bit different. Um, you know, my understanding of their goal is to, you know, to write about the research that interests them. Right. And you, you will, they'll cover research almost as, a, as its own story mm -hmm. um, or just in, in, in discussing political news or political events of the day, you know, you'll see certain kinds of research be touchstones in that coverage. Right. Um, so that, you know, that, that approach may be somewhat singular. I, I don't know that it's, it's, it's widely shared. Um, but I, I do think that just having political scientists in the public sphere writing um, has made it harder to ignore them. It's, it's made it easier to see them as, oh, well, th th that's part of the story. You know, I, I have right. to do that and, 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 do, and do it in a way that's not just, you know, write the story and then plug in the quote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but to try to do a little bit more to orient the framing of the story around not just what happened on the campaign trail, for example, but also what happened, yeah. what's happening in the research. Well, that kind of leads into my next question, I guess, is that, that kind of traditional reporting of what's happening on the campaign trail. And I'm wondering kind of if you could talk a little bit about what you think that the, the standard traditional mainstream media does, uh, what kind of a job they do at, at covering political campaigns. Do you think there are things that they do particularly poorly or particularly well? Yeah, sure. I, I think what they do well um, is a lot of it is just getting the story every day. Um, you know, I've, I've spent only, you know, a few days here and there, you know, like in Iowa or New Hampshire, for example, um, during the presidential primary season. And that just gives you a very small window into um, what a slog it is. Right. Um, week in, week out to follow these candidates around and, and, you know, tell us what they're doing and saying. I, I think that that even that sort of straightforward kind of operation deserves a lot of credit. I do think that the news media does a good job uncovering things that we need to know, um, subjecting candidates to scrutiny, providing a degree of accountability, um, you know, on the mm -hmm. on the best you know on the best days you know holding the candidate's feet to the fire in a way that conforms to sure something like tradition. like like Jake Tapper asking Donald Trump twenty three times yeah. about yeah uh, yeah, yeah you know, or the, the reporting on the reporting on Trump University and, and sure all that kind of stuff and no one else is going to do that work you know I mean the the opposition campaign might do it um, right but they're they're operating from a place of you know less credibility in some ways because of yeah. course they're going to attack the opponent yeah without a doubt uh, so I, I think that's you know, that role is, in, is in, incredibly useful. Um, I, to me, I think that the times when I, I, I get a bit frustrated with news coverage of campaigns, um, 
you know, obviously the one of the challenges of writing about a campaign every day is you have to have something new to say. Yeah. And I think that that can, you know, I think that sometimes leads to storylines that that overplay the the sort of daily TikTok mm-hmm. or what you might call kind of, kind of the froth of a campaign. Sure. Um, stuff that's unlikely to matter in the long run gets to be gets a lot of attention in the short run. Sometimes my other frustration, as I think, is that there's a real tendency to, especially with campaign coverage, for the reporters to insert their voice mm-hmm. um, in there as, a, as part of being analytical. So the you know, a standard media and politics textbook is going to call that interpretive journalism. It's not just what happened on the campaign trail today. It's what it means. Right. And I think the what it means part is, A, where sometimes the, you know, exaggeration of the significance of the day's events comes in. Um, but it's also a time where I feel like there's a tendency to, you know, again, to kind of construct a story or a narrative over a period of weeks and months that's, that is in some sense of the, of the reporter's making. It's not that the, that narrative is always wrong, per se. Right. Um, but it is, it is to some extent a construct. And, and sometimes I don't feel like that's fully appreciated. That role is fully appreciated. Mm-hmm. I, the, something I noticed over the last week was a story in the New York Times on, on Saturday. This is Saturday a week ago now that said that the headline was Clinton struggles to find footing. And it was this, you know, I think occasioned by the fact that the polls had narrowed a little bit, by the fact that you could find a bunch of Democrats who weren't affiliated with the campaign willing to go on the record and say, oh, I'm worried. She hasn't done what she needs to do. It's going to be a tough fight, blah, blah, blah. That's Saturday. Then on Thursday, she gives that speech, criticizes Trump, Mm -hmm. calls him out on a, a dozen things in somewhat sharp language. And then lo and behold, the, that yeah. Thursday New York Times story was Clinton, Clinton seemed to find her footing. Yeah. yeah. So we, got, we went from no footing to footing in like five days. Yeah. And that to me doesn't reflect any actual real underlying shift in the campaign. You know, that's just, as one journalist put it when I tweeted that out, narrators going to narrate. Yeah. Yeah. So I think again, some of those narr- some of those narratives aren't wrong. It's just, but I think sometimes, um, you know, sometimes they have more of a life of their own than I think the evidence the evidence warrants. Yeah. And sometimes I think they're they're oversold. Yeah, it it seems to me that so much campaign reporting and even campaign books, at least if they're written by journalists, focus a lot on that sort of thing, on personalities, on kind of day-to-day strategy, you know, the big speech that's going to change everything and so forth. Uh, Now, you actually wrote a book on the presidential election, the 2012 book that's The Gamble. Uh, Now, you didn't take that approach at all. And so I'm wondering if you could sort of explain how your analysis of the 2012 election differed from that of, say, a typical political reporter. Um, So I think one thing we, we set out to do in that book, obviously, was to was to ground it in the in not just in data on campaign ads, on media coverage, on voters, um, but to ground it in the literature. And not that we spent a lot of time in the book doing literature reviews, but you know the canonical findings from political science, you know, served as kind of guideposts for our analysis. Um, you know, kind of gave us a sense of where to look for for where the story was um, and and gave us a sense of how to put the findings from that particular election um, in a, in a broader context. In some sense, I think our, our focus in that book was on, you know, what can we say mattered and didn't matter using this evidence? Right. Um, Where I think a, a traditional book by a reporter would what they would what that would be would be a story about the campaign from the perspective of the practitioners themselves because the what we lack as social scientists is access yeah to the to campaign consultants working for the candidates and i think what the stories that journalists can tell that are that are really important and useful are stories about how decisions were made um what the thinking was behind those decisions um well, but I don't. I'm not sure that that that's the best way to figure out whether those decisions actually matter. Um, 
relying on campaign consultants to report on their own effectiveness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, can be can be problematic. And um, I don't. I also don't. I also think that sometimes the the question that you really need to ask a campaign consultant who wants to, you know, brag about some game-changing decision that they made, the question that you want to ask them is, how do you know that? Right. How do you know that? Yeah. And they can say, well, we, we did a poll. Yeah. Well, what, what, when did you do the poll? What did you ask in the poll? You know, you almost have to ask them a set of questions that come out of like a research methodology class mm-hmm. to be able to understand what they think they learned and then to be able to see why what they think they learned may not actually be what they learned. Right. Right. And, and um, we, I think, can do more on that front with the tools and data that we have. Um, where I think, you know, we're going to fall short, and this is going to be true of all, I think, campaign um, books, but I think where we fall short is, is when, in some sense, the effectiveness of a particular decision or what have you can only be measured against a counterfactual that we can't yeah. observe. Yeah. Right. So we we showed in our book that, for example, Romney's comments in late September about the 47 percent really had at best kind of a small and temporary effect on the polls. Um, didn't really change sort of v- v- voters perceptions of Romney as, in terms of whether he was. You know, he cared about the wealthy instead of the middle class or what have you. But you'll get the I will get pushback on that story that says, well, but yes, but if he hadn't said that. Right. Right. X, Y and Z might have happened or sure. could have happened or would have happened. And, you know, I, I, I tend to find those kinds of counterfactuals, you know, not particularly persuasive oftentimes, but it's absolutely the case that, you know, we don't know. Yeah. Um, we can't do that. Well, analysis. It, it seems like a lot of the if the only if your only source of campaign news would be from standard reporting, I would think that your your impression would be that by far the two most important things are the quality of the candidate and the quality of the campaign that that candidate runs, and everything else is sort of secondary to that. But I mean, it seems to me the political scientist view is a little bit different from that. Would you would you agree with that? I think we start from the perspective that candidates and campaigns are operating within a structure and a context that's largely out of their control. Um, and that has a lot of influence over how things turn out. Yeah. Um, so obviously in a presidential general election, you're interested in, you know, voters' perceptions of how things are going in the country, the state of the economy. Um, you know, in a midterm election, you're, you're so much of, of, of what's going on is a reaction to the incumbent party in the White House, right? So you, the the idea of the president's party losing seats in midterms, for example, um, and that's in part determined by the president's popularity and you know and some other things. So I think a lot of that is is you know kind of the hand that you're dealt, and you have to play it, and right. there's not much you can do to change that. Um, what's often called the fundamentals. Yeah. So I think those are those you know figure a little bit more strongly in in our account of things, um, you know where I do think that that campaigns and candidates matter um, more even more um, is is largely down the ballot, um, where I do think that the difference between I mean we do know this from political science so the, the difference between nominating a candidate that has elective office experience in a house as a challenger mm-hmm. in a House race versus nominating a candidate with no political experience has a significant effect on whether or not that challenger has a chance of beating the incumbent. Right. Or we know, for example, in a presidential primaries that um, features of the candidates do seem to matter to voters. Um, you know, evangelical voters seem more attracted to the candidates that are more explicitly evangelical. Sure, yeah, <laughs> Or we also know that media coverage and, and campaigning can change preferences a lot uh, more quickly and a lot more strongly than in a presidential general election. So, you know, the irony is I think that we spend most of our time in politics focused on presidential general elections, which are exactly the elections that are the least likely to show us the effects of a political campaign. Right. um, Absent some sort of unusual circumstance. So, So, you know, unfortunately, because that's the sort of moment in which we have these conversations about what matters and what doesn't matter, I think it actually tends to exaggerate the differences between journalists and political scientists. Hmm. I've sort of gotten a little bit 
tired of, of kind of dealing with, you know, well, political scientists think it's all about growth and, and gross domestic product. Right. You know, you know, any passing familiarity with the political science literature knows that's not true. Sure. Um, but we do happen to be focusing on an election in which, you know, the state of the economy is important more so and, and maybe the individual foibles of the candidates less so. So, um, you know, in an ideal world, I think we can see that, that, that both of these things do matter. It's just a question of kind of how much emphasis we should put on them. So, uh, and that may be where the difference rises. So, so based on your analysis in in the gamble, uh, what were the things that you would say were the most important in 2012? And to what extent would you say that these things uh, would apply to 2016, which a lot of folks say is a, a very different election from anything we've seen? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that we argued in 2012 was that, you know, Romney had kind of consolidated enough support in the party to be the likely nominee. I mean, we said that in, in December 2015 or, you know, right on the, on the, in the, right before the Iowa caucus. Um, and I think, you know, the narrative from the fall uh, of that, of, of 2011, excuse me, not 2015, but 2011 was, um, you know, the, the Republican Party was looking for anybody except Romney or but Romney. Right. And we thought that actually probably not, that's probably not the case, that Romney actually was much better positioned even though the party hadn't consolidated around him as strongly as it did around, say, George W. Bush in, in the run-up to the 2000 election. Um, in 2015, 2016, I think the main difference there is that uh, the party never was able to coalesce, even to the extent that it did in 2012. Mm -hmm. So you had a much more fractured field. You had no clear frontrunner. Um, and I think that probably played a significant role in allowing Trump to eventually dominate the field and, and to win. Um, one other thing that we argued in 2012 was that, you know, we could see the role of the news media in the primary campaign. And I think you saw it in, in 2015 as well. I think news coverage and the, and, and, and the rise of news coverage was crucial for the surge of Trump, the same way it was crucial for the surge of Carson, Mm -hmm. And brief, briefly for Fiorina, um, similarly as it was for Perry and Santorum and Gingrich and others, um, I think that it, it played a crucial role. I think the, you know, the difference was that there wasn't, because there wasn't sort of an organized pushback against Trump within the party, or nor was there really any coalescing around an alternative, I think that made it easier for Trump to continue to dominate the news. Right. And not experience the scrutiny and the decline that candidates in 2011, like Perry and Gingrich, experienced. Um, and that may have something to do with the unique features of Trump, speaking of candidate personalities. Sure. Right. Yeah. And his ability to provide um, controversy and and personality yeah. and all the things that I think are attractive to, to news organizations and also, frankly, attractive to news consumers, yeah. um, i.e. you and me. Uh, so, you know, I think that played a role in, in keeping Trump at the top of the polls for so long and, and denying oxygen to the other candidates. Mm -hmm. um, so that, to me, is one difference between the two campaigns. If to pivot just briefly to the general election without knowing obviously what's going to happen. I mean, one interesting thing to me thus far is, you know, it was not that hard to predict that Obama was going to win in 2012. Right. Um, and most of the political science forecasts thought that was the, the likelier outcome. Uh, and certainly that's the direction that the campaign moved things over time. Mm -hmm. um, there was really no doubt on election day who was going to win if you looked at the polls. And um, but in 2016, what seems to be interesting thus far is that the Democrats seem to have a better chance of winning than you might expect, given at least certain fundamentals. Right. Um, now, we, we'll see what happens as the election year evolves. But, you know, I, I don't think that the, the, the economic growth in the election year and Obama's personal popularity make it a, make it, um, a slam dunk for the Democrats. It's even less of a slam dunk if you think that there's a penalty for the party, you know, trying to win a third term in the White House. Yeah. Um, the so-called time for a change factor. 
but yet I think that you know, Clinton has a lead in the polls. Most, I think, professional sort of forecasting um, methodologies, whether it's sort of elite surveys or the betting markets, give the Democrats um, a pretty substantial chance, maybe a 70% to 30% chance mm-hmm. or a two-thirds, one-third chance. And I think that's that's interesting to me. You know, maybe we're, one thing we're going to learn about 2016 is that um, – a candidate like Trump perhaps did cost the party. Right. So if a candidate is unusual enough, he can override some of those fundamentals, perhaps at least to a, to yeah. a certain extent, maybe. Yeah. yeah I mean, one of, the, one of the things my co-author, Lynn Vavrick, um, likes to say, um, which is, you know, will probably come out in the book that we're writing about 2016, um, is that you know a, 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 t- a, tra- a tra- traditional forecasting model based on the fundamentals is, is a sort of assuming an equilibrium, right? You know, mm-hmm. which is to say, you know, other things aren't dramatically different or out of balance. Yeah, you know, you sort of expect two basically competent candidates, or two candidates that are sort of equally. Right. They're, they're kind of playing yeah. by the same kind of tr- traditional rules, doing the things we expect candidates they're to equally, do. Yeah, they're equally matched yeah. in a variety of, of ways. Yeah. Uh, um, and that may not be the case this year. Um, obviously, Trump is unusual personally, but, you know, he, he also may not be running. He's not running a conventional campaign. Right. He may not raise as much money as Clinton does. Maybe he could be outspent by a pretty substantial amount that we haven't seen since 2008 when McCain took public funding and Obama didn't. Right. Um it's not quite clear the Republican Party is going to step up and help Trump the way that the outside group stepped up and helped Romney in 2012, which enabled him to, to kind of match Obama dollar for dollar, even though he raised a lot less money personally than Obama did. Um, so that we, we could see some things that are kind of interesting. And then, you know, another thing that a lot of commentators and political scientists have pointed out is that you know, we obviously are experiencing um, demographic change in this country and a growing fraction of the electorate is non-white. And I think there's a there's a question about whether, you know, it's a reasonable question to ask about whether a, a, a model based on presidential approval in the economy or whatever from 1948 to 19, 2012, I mean, you know, ac- across that time period, of course, are mostly elections that took place with a very different right. demography. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to talk about that a little bit, actually. Yeah, I mean, maybe so maybe de- demography is one of those things that sort of shifting the equilibrium in a way that's probably helpful to Democrats, especially if, if the Republican Party yeah. is going to nominate candidates like Trump. Yeah. I mean, you know, the demography issue is one, a number of issues that kind of come along uh, that when you take a look and try to make predictions based on a, a model uh, that, that maybe has fit really well for previous elections, some folks would say, well, that's, that's kind of inherently problematic because, number one, there just aren't that many elections to take a look at, at least for presidential. And, and number two, they take, place, they take place over a long period of time when so many things like demography and, and, and various other social factors and so forth can change. And so there's, there's one model, for instance, um, uh, 13 keys to the presidency. I believe that has correctly mm-hmm. predicted uh, every backfit every election till like the beginning of the two party system and but some people say essentially their their ability to predict the future isn't all that great because of because of those factors what, what do you what do you think about that are these models something that we can rely on for a reasonably good prediction of the future well you know I think the track record of them has been has been pretty good in terms of calling winners um you know, getting that exact margin of victory or defeat correct is been problematic sure. in some election years, most prominently in 2000. Most models thought that Gore would win the popular vote, but they thought he'd win it pretty substantially and obviously by enough to that the Electoral College really wouldn't be an issue. Right. Clearly that didn't happen. Um, I, I do think that that I mean, I guess the challenge for for if you if you're just trying to forecast presidential general elections, you know, the challenge is that you don't really have enough data, yeah, to to begin to tell when the model is is sort of becoming wrong, right? Like, I mean, there could be a regime shift, as it were, in the, in the parameters of the model, um, and it's just hard to estimate that with any precision. Yeah. 
without more data. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a lot easier to do, for for instance, for congressional elections because you have a lot more to work with. Yeah, I think there's more there um, if you're if you're modeling them at the district or state level. Yeah, um, that's helpful. Um, so you know, I think I mean my my orientation is that I think there's always value, and I think there's value in, in forecasting. I think that's it's it's a useful. I mean, people disagree about how much social science, social science should be about forecasting, but I, I think of it as, a, as a, again, one tool in the toolkit that mm-hmm. we should take advantage of when we can. Um, it, it does serve as a useful check on our models and, and ways of seeing the world. Um, plus, it's also something that the elect, you know, people are really interested in. Um, Definitely. So when I bring to bear our own expertise on that subject. Sure. Um, at the same time, I, I think my, I mean, the way that we're approaching you know, these models in, in this particular year is sometimes I just, I look at them as providing a, a, a baseline that derives from certain things we know to be traditionally important. Um, and if the outcome ultimately deviates from that baseline, that to me is actually kind of interesting. So, I, you know, yeah. rather than see it as like a defeat or, you know, I, I'm, I'm at least particularly in 2016 interested in, in, what that might tell us about um, other factors that could have been operating right. in this election. Um, and then, I mean, over time, you know, you could try to incorporate those kinds of factors into the model. Obviously, you, I mean, you can't have a, 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 a dummy variable for Donald Trump. No, no, yeah. Uh, but, you know, you know we, we might be able to find ways to, to incorporate the demography of the electorate or so, or to try to try to get some leverage on the fact that there seem to be fewer swing voters these days, you know, mm-hmm. those kinds of factors. But so, I mean, I guess my overall orientation is, you know, I'm 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 not so much looking for like um, to have like a game show and pick the best model. Right. And, you know, I, I think that we, we have, you know, theory and evidence that across a large range of elections that tells us that some of these fundamentals are important. Let's see what they can tell us. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that theory and evidence extends far beyond, you know, 17 post-war presidential elections. Um, so, you know, it's not as if we're everything rides on on one regression equation. Right. With 17 observations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we can I think we can use that to to get some, you know, a sense of of what those factors would predict. And then we'll learn a lot no matter what. So you know, going back to Donald Trump, uh, I think a lot of people, especially a lot of people on the left, have looked at the rise of Donald Trump and seem to have come to the conclusion that the people who are voting for him uh, have to be deeply ignorant uh, or irrational or some combination thereof. Uh, do you think that's a fair conclusion to draw? Uh, I, don't, I don't really like to, to sort of put judgments on the electorate in quite that way. Okay. Um, you know, it, it just strikes me as um, normative, you know, sort of norm- sure. normative no. um, right. uh, assessments of, of, of people's intelligence in some way. Um, I, I would, ra- I mean, I would rather look for, you know, individual level attributes that are associated with Trump support. Um, sure learn from those analytically. You mean, you mean when you say individual lover attributes, you mean things like, uh, uh, like support for authoritarianism or things like, or, or. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that, that there have been some surveys that correlate authoritarianism with Trump support. We've had a bunch of content on the monkey cage, including some things I've been involved in, which shows the correlation between, you know, attitudes towards different kinds of minority groups Mm -hmm. or, um, concern about the status of whites. Um, we've done some analysis of economic anxiety it, in the primary. That is, yeah. um, all those things were associated with Trump support. There's been some analysis from the general election that continues to show the importance of racial attitudes. Um, you know, I, I think those those are those correlations appear to be you know meaningful and real, and and then right. I think that's. That's the kind of thing I'm, I'm interested in documenting. Sure. And so you uh, kind of put that out there and let people draw whatever kind of normative conclusions they want to draw from that, but that's not really what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's such a difficult, difficult question. Oh, sure. Right, to answer to me what's what's rational, and it, it depends a lot on your definition of rationality. Oh, yeah. 
to me, like there's one version of that which says that, you know, merely the fact that you have views that are hostile to minority groups is irrational. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's an exaggerated sense of threat and, and so on and so forth. There's another view of rationality that says that what really is rational behavior is just are you are you drawing on those underlying beliefs in a way that allows you to pick the right candidate sure. given those beliefs. Right? You're kind so of internally a, consistent based on your yeah, fundamental views. It's, yeah. It's like a procedural version of rationality. Yeah. yeah. And I just have, to, in my mind, um, you know, <laughs> adjudicating among those different perspectives is is a is philosophically, yeah, difficult. It's kind of a minefield. Uh, yeah. 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 So to me, and I, and again, I'm and I so I, I would just I'd rather steer clear. Sure. Um, kind of a, a broader, I guess, version of that question is: you know, there are some folks who would take a look at the kind of candidates that emerge from our system, the kind of policies that emerge from our democratic process, and they. They've reached a conclusion, a lot like I guess you could say that Mencken maybe did, that the public is uh, not just irrational, but deeply and systematically irrational or ignorant, I guess, or some combination thereof. And from that, they draw the conclusion that the only way to get better government is to make it somewhat less democratic in nature. Uh, you have any thoughts on that? Or is you that know, is that a little? No, I know it's kind of normative, but I wanted to throw yeah, it out well, there. Yeah, I mean, so the, I mean, I think the, the, this argument's been made pretty strongly in a new book by Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartels called "Democracy for Realists," mm-hmm. um, and and I think their argument is that um, you know a shift to solve to, to a shift to making decisions. And an increasing number of decisions by plebiscite um, is not necessarily the best way. Doesn't always less necessarily lead to the best decisions, right? Um, and you know, this may reflect the limitations that you and I have, and others have as ordinary citizens in terms of what we know um, and the amount of time and effort we can put into thinking about things. Um, and it may reflect the fact that the information that we're given to make those decisions isn't always very good information, which reflects the, the, you know, strategic decisions of elites to misinform us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I see the, um, to me, I think that there's always a, there's always a balance between empowering ordinary people to make these decisions and, and in some sense delegating authority to mm-hmm. people that we think of as having, you know, the expertise and judgment to make those decisions. Right, right. Um, and I don't know exactly how to get that balance right as a, as a sort of a statement of principle. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty um, tricky one, I'd say. I'll, I'll say that, you know, without answering that I mean, without sort of coming down myself, I mean, I think that there, one of the interesting conversations that this particular election has given rise to is, you know, the role of voters versus, let's say, leaders in the selection of candidates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the definitely. Nom- you know, nomination stage. Um, you know, on the Democratic side, it's a little bit less fraught of an issue, despite, I think, the, you know, the, some of the criticisms that the Sanders campaign has launched, because Clinton's winning, you know, she's going to win no matter, she's going to win the, 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 the delegates sure. and the superdelegates, yeah. right? So it's not as if the superdelegates are going to step in as party leaders and change the outcome. Right. Um, but on the Republican side, obviously, there's a big question. And, the, you know, whether or not there needs to be more of a role for, yeah. you know, elites to try to manage the process. Yeah, so it, it seems almost ironic in a sense the Democratic Party, at least in its process for selecting a candidate, is uh, a, a bit less actually small-D Democratic than the than the Republicans are. And, and I was kind of wondering if the Republicans might look back at 2016 if what we think happens will happen and if they might want to make some big changes to their process, maybe uh, along the lines of the Democrats have a, have a larger number of superdelegates or something like that. Do you, would you expect something like that to happen i expect that conversation to take place yeah and it's certainly the case that most after every if, if the republicans lose um then or maybe even if they win <laughs> depending on yeah how much they want to they want to support trump um I, I think that losing parties are always fighting the last election's battle um trying to change the process in ways that they think 
will help. It usually, well, I don't want to say usually, but at least often it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. For example, they thought that they should accelerate the process a little bit this year. Yeah. But it, that only helped them get Trump the nomination Right, yeah, sooner. exactly. Uh, Not what they wanted. Yeah, so, but I do think that you'll 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 see that conversation take place. Um, I don't know that they're going to create superdelegates on the Republican side, um, but it does. It, this election does raise a question where you know you've had both in in, in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve and two thousand sixteen, and none of those elections was there like a like a, a substantial consensus in the party. Right. You know. Um, you know, the consensus around Romney was was modest, um, yeah. at least in terms of people's in terms of what was visible and manifest, like the endorsements mm-hmm. of Romney by party leaders. Yeah. So they've had three election cycles in a row where I think that's been it's been harder than it was in 2000, for example. So it, it does raise the question about whether there's anything the party can do in terms of rules to change that or whether that just reflects sort of broader cleavages sure. in the party that are difficult to paper over with with changes to rules right and it might just require the party to work out some of its disagreements let's say about immigration um and figure out a way to come to some kind of consensus on that issue yeah it should be interesting. i don't know how easy that's going to be <laughs> I, I would predict not, not very yeah definitely um i, I know we're, we're pushing up on an hour here, so just one last question for you before we go um uh, a very practical question, I guess. Obviously, you are very tuned in to what's going on in, in politics. And so where do you go for your political news? I mean, obviously, aside from the monkey cage in the Washington Post, um, do you have any uh, news sites, blogs, podcasts, or even book recommendations that you, you care to share with listeners? I mean, I think mine are not all that unconventional. Um, I think, you, you know, from from the standpoint of learning about politics, you can't beat newspapers. Uh, I'm with you. you. Know, so, you know, the Post and the Times and, and, you know, I think those that's still where you've got a lot of the valuable reporting going on. Um, and, you know, I, I, I marry that to. I mean, I guess I, I, I try to. Um, marry the day to day news coverage where they think the political analysis that I think I respect and more, mm-hmm. you know, um, so in my mind, I like, um, of course, I like the more data-driven stuff. Sure. Which means reading Vox and 538 and, and the Upshot and places like that. Um, I think, you know, there are analysts at the Cook Political Report, um, Dave Wasserman, Amy Walter, people like that, that I think are, are, are they're not only very numerate people, right, you know, in terms yeah. of their facility with data, but I just, I feel like there's also a, um, a sort of a certain... Uh, calmness <laughs> to their sure. way of thinking about politics that contrasts with some of the bloviation that you're going to get um, on ta- on television, for example. Yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, one thing I don't do is I don't watch tele- much televised coverage of politics, certainly don't watch cable news. Um, I think that's probably m- makes me smarter. <laughs> it helps than, maintain your sanity, I would say. Yeah, yeah it, definitely. it helps you not, you know, not over, not overreact. Yeah. Um, not overreactive things. Um, you know, I th- so, I, you know, th- that's um, a, a rough approximation of my news diet. Um, and I think, you know, the, uh, the stuff that I see that, that outside of that is just stuff that kind of comes across the transom. Right. Um, yeah. I, I know the, I know another good strategy is to find a couple of people that you think of as relatively good curators uh-huh. And, get, and get their daily news, you know, newsletter or whatever. You know, there, there are a number of people who uh, who use Twitter for that purpose. Certainly. Yeah, I mean, so like, for example, Jonathan Bernstein. Jonathan Bernstein's one of the regular writers at Bloomberg. He's a political scientist by training. Um, and his, you know, his newsletter every morning, six or eight links. Um, is going to have a couple things that I probably didn't see. Mm-hmm. And also we'll have you know, a good overview of the political science writing that's going on, not just at the monkey cage, but also at, at the mischiefs of faction and, you know, other kinds of op-eds that political scientists may have produced um, in other places that I would normally read. So, I, you know, finding a couple of people like that that are good curators is a good way, I think, to to let let them do the work of, of sifting through all the stuff yeah. that's published and identifying stuff that 
is really in your wheelhouse. And, and of course, again, want to mention that the, a great place to start would be the Washington Post and the Monkey Cage. And uh, for people who want to who want to follow you, uh, follow the Monkey Cage. Uh, are you on uh, the, the the Monkey Cage is on Twitter? Is that right? Yep, we are at oh. Monkey Cage Blog on Twitter. Okay, and I will. Um, we also have also have a Facebook page. Um, if you're interested in you know liking us and then seeing our stuff in your Facebook newsfeed, which would be great. And I will put those links in our show notes for today. So if you're looking for that. So, all right, well, on that note, we will wrap things up. Uh, John Side, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news throughout the week, and where you can join in, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, politicsguys.com.